Hello and welcome. Uh, you are listening to Fourth Estate, coming to you from the Sydney studios of 2SER on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, around the world on a podcast listening device of your choosing. My name is Peter Frey and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at UTS and my producer tonight is Anthony Dockrell. And tonight we have a special podcast event with Catherine Murphy, the political editor of The Guardian Australia, who has produced a magnificent tome called On Disruption, all about disruption in the news media sector. Thanks for coming, Catherine. Thanks for having me, Peter. And why on earth are we talking to you? Well, that is the question, isn't it? (laughs) We are talking to Catherine Murphy, who I must say I've known as Murph for about 30 years Mm -hmm. or whatever. 300 years. Yes, 300 years. Yes. Um, Because she's written what is perhaps a deceptively... Slight tome, but I am here to assure you that it's a very powerful tome. Um, it's kind of a, it's an essay, obviously. It's Catherine Murphy on disruption. It's part of an MUP series of ONS. If ons you like. Many ONS. ons. Yeah, Beautiful, of ons. all of them. Yes. Small and perfectly formed. This one is is purple. And as Evie McGuire has just said, reminds us a little bit of the little book of calm. <laughs> but it is not calm. Sadly, there's a dystopia inside. <laughs> there is. That's your dystopia warning. <laughs> it's sort of part memoir, part confish- confession, and I think in part a call to arms. A sort of. Um, so the simple question first, uh, Murph, is did you enjoy writing it? I did. Why? Uh, because I really needed to say it. Uh, and it's sort of the the sum of uh, many thoughts I've had over the last few years. I've had this little book more or less in my head in various forms. So well, it's it's always hard to write something, even though it is a modest tome. It's only I think it's fifteen thousand words, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, it's it's always the 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 act of writing is never stress-free, but I wrote it fairly quickly because, uh, as I said, I had a very clear idea about what I wanted to say and broadly how I wanted to say it. And uh, I really wanted, I suppose, to take the conversation that you and I have about what's happening in our industry to a wider audience. And uh, the, the call to arms, I think, as you've said, is absolutely right in my mind. It's uh, I want to uh, have a conversation with news consumers that mm, uh, mm. we would normally really just indulge amongst ourselves. And I think I think you achieved that. So congratulations. Thank you. We're going to get around to some of those issues very soon. Uh, you're listening to the Fourth Estate Special with Catherine Murphy, the author of a new essay in a book form called On Disruption, part of a series by MUP. I don't necessarily wish to do this interview as a kind of chronology uh, to keep pace with the book, but let's go back to where more or less you start. So not the image of you, t- <laughs> of you turning up to work on your first day in a sports craft mm-hmm. suit. Tempting mm-hmm. as that may be, mm-hmm. but at the juncture of two things, in a sense, the start of the death of the print era yes. of journalism and that seminal change in Australian politics, the end of the Hawke-Keating governments and the election of John Howard. So let's do the politics first. You paint a picture at the end of the Keating, Hawke-Keating era as a of a journalist crying on election night, which I think if you're a kind of news consumer, that is a bit of a confronting issue, mm. the image. Mm. But you make the point that, that the journalist, the unnamed journalist, mm. is not crying out of partisanship, uh, not crying because Labor's lost, but in, the, but in the knowledge that much of their working life 
in how they kind of, if you like, iterate that working life was about to end. And I quote a lovely, a lovely quote, when a government changes, a small universe explodes. So that dynamic, that symbiosis, especially found in the press gallery, is, is very little understood from the outside and not often discussed with such can- candor. So praise to you for writing about it. Tell me, is that relationship a good or a bad thing or just the way things have to be? The proximity of it, you mean? Or, yes, or well, the, the nature. So here's someone who's, you know, I think it sums it up beautifully. There's someone who's crying yes. on election night because... Hawk Keating and all those ministers, all those contacts have been washed out to sea. Well, it's sort of, it's, it's a big thing when a government changes. Voters understand that because obviously when there is a change of government, it is a big event in the country. It's not just a big event in my little, my little ecosystem, but, but everywhere. Uh, that, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's such a good question. It's, um, I don't know why that woman was crying. No, you didn't stop to ask her. I didn't stop to ask her. You were busy filing. Her. Oh, no, well, actually, no, you're busy not filing. I was busy, it, yeah. I was busy we'll wandering around. We'll get to around. that in a second, yeah. But, but it is, there is this sense of dislocation. There is this sense that uh, because governments in Australia generally last more than one term, two terms, three terms, four terms sometimes, there is this whole investment in storytelling and working life, mm. uh, connections with people, uh, an understanding of a government's rhythm, tempo, uh, all all of that. That's a that's a big investment. That's a very big investment you make, and then all of a sudden it's it's broken, and all of that investment has to start again. And you have to find your own level, your own tempo, uh, new relationships, all of that sort sorts of things. So it's quite a visceral thing mm. to happen. And me describing it in that way was sort of setting readers up for a big technological change that was Absolutely. that was coming at us down the pipe that we that we couldn't even see then Peter we right. didn't even know it was we didn't happening we didn't have a clue we thought it would no. never end no. the party would go on forever exactly. not that we thought it was so much of a party but we because well, we didn't know it was a party until we looked back and saw the party had exactly. finished exactly right? and we didn't know what was coming yes. so and but in terms of the the relationship between political journalists and politicians well does it have to be the way it is well well no obviously no. not and it it's changing be. isn't it it is changing Yes, mm. it is changing in a lot of different ways. Uh, I was I had a conversation with Michelle Grattan last week, actually, around some of these issues, and uh, and obviously a long-standing political mm. journalist for You're folks at the beginning, who, I think. Who, who, well, yeah. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> for no, folks no who don't know, no, 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 no. For folks who don't know Michelle, can't imagine anyone wouldn't. But just in case you don't know Michelle, she's a she's a, a press gallery newspaper journalist of many many decades, a standing a doyen, quiet. Mm, uh, and we we sort of I think came to a, a mutual position that in a funny way uh, the the relationship between political journalist and politician has been redrawn drawn a bit in the digital age. In some respects, we're closer because mm. we monitor each other in the mm. digisphere mm. in a way mm. that we didn't do mm. intensely. Well, yeah. quite intensely, yeah, yes, yes, quite intensely. We it's like sort of tracks on a beach, digital mm. footprints on a beach. We we watch each other very closely. But we, we're not thrown together quite as organically as we were mm. in the old days. So we're closer yet more distant, which is a funny sort of concept to try and explain, but it is nonetheless true. For example, I was remembering that one of the tricks Michelle taught me when I was very young in the sports craft suit in the AFR Bureau <laughs> uh, was that if a minister wasn't returning your call, uh, mm. that you would literally, you would go down to the ministerial office sit in the foyer until such time as mm. the minister came out. Yeah. And that was routine. We kind did that all the time. Well, well, no one would do that now. No. 
It's no, a shame in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, without getting you know, too carried away with the misty-eyed sort of nature of that, it's actually getting the job done. No, no, exactly. It was an ideal way to get the job because literally the minister couldn't walk past you without obviously being there. But that's a, it's a combination of different things. They're busier, we're busier. Mm. Uh, the security in the building is different. The mm. building is locked down more than it used to be. Mm. Um, and the way we communicate with one another has been redrawn by technology just as the way the way journalists and readers communicate with each other has been mm. redrawn. No, no, absolutely. I, I, just before we leave the sports grass suit, and we will leave it right now. But I, just for in my the head, health of everyone in my listening, head it's cream. But I suspect it's not cream. Tell no, me what it's, color it's it green, was. my dear. It's what green? Green. Mm-hmm. Oh, what is that? That's mm-hmm. an added bonus. Forest green. Forest green. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yes, oh, I thought you were going to say blue. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, much of the book is about lifting the hood, I suppose, lifting the hood, and you use a great car analogy later on in the book, or middle on in the book, uh, and explaining about what goes on and why, and and why, so I'm interested, why you thought it was so important to have this kind of confessional element. Is, is confession, if you like, a prerequisite for understanding disruption? No, it's not, uh, and I had actually, uh, I wanted in the first instance to do a companion piece to uh, an essay that I had I wrote last year for a publication called Me Engine Quarterly, which was about uh, political life, mm, mm. Uh, and I introduced or I, I interviewed uh, former cabinet minister Greg Combay, um, a long-term Liberal backbencher Mel Washer, a long-term Labor staffer, and I I sort of did a doc almost like a documentary about mm. their life mm-hmm. to try and explain to people why politics seems to have gone off the rails rather than standing outside that phenomenon and throwing rocks at it which is what we do mm-hmm. justifiably that's our job I, when you talk about lifting up the hood i wanted with that piece to try and interrogate what was going on behind the scenes in order to better explain why politics is manifesting in the way that it did so uh, I so wanted, you had that kind of concept in your head. I had it in my head. Yeah, yes. fair enough. So that's that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to actually approach us in the same way because I always knew I was coming back to us. Mm. In the, and by us, I mean journalists. Okay, yeah, that's right. So I, I, in my head, I was going to do a similar exercise. I was going to decant the contents of various people's heads and have a, okay, have a sort of more reported piece. But a lot of people... Well, a lot of people, the people I asked, weren't all that keen, really, to Mm. be interviewed on the record. And not so much because they felt there was some great secret they had to keep, but more their feeling was, we're still in transition. Mm. We're still in flux. I'm not certain that I I would have much uh, sort of cut through value to, to... to uh, mm. share at well, this of course, point. We will be in transition possibly forever. Well, <laughs> possibly for, well, certainly at least for another decade and probably beyond that. Yeah, and right. so, and that was reasonable. So then I thought, oh, okay, well, rather than drop it, I thought, well, my experience of this is as valid as anybody else's. Mm. Uh, uh, and I was a sort of early adopter in digital and uh, I would ha- you know, I, I could narrate my own perspective. So I thought, oh, well, I'll do it that way. It wasn't actually my first choice. It was my second choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's there's a bit of power, I think, though, in narrating your own story because when I build up to various propositions in this essay where I really do want to grab the reader by the lapels and say, mm. look, there's listen really up. listen up. Yep. There's some really big things going on here that it'd be really good if you grappled with or started to think about. 
there's there's a power in telling your own story as well as telling the story of others. Yeah, no, fair point. So fair I point. sort of I kind of adjusted into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it wasn't no, I get actually it. I my get first. It. And, and it works. I um, just one of the big things, one of those lapel grabbing moments, is really when we get to Trump, uh, who, as you say, is a leader who absolutely understands and exploits the digital news media cycle's need for constant crisis yep. and incessant conflict. Mm-hmm. So so Trump is playing journals at their own game, right? Yep. I mean, as Carl Pope, and you quote him in the book, says, who's from the Colombian journalism, who says, you know, um, Trump has turned up to be the assignment editor for reporters. So is this this moment where, or do does journalism in a way, is journalism being suckered in? And are we, by being suckered in, kind of complicit in, if you like, the Trump madness. And I guess the question is, is there an alternative to mm. this? Well, the, the answer to the first two questions mm. is yes to both. Yes, absolutely yes. Uh, is there an alternative? There's not an easy alternative. This is the difficulty. We've got, with the Trump phenomenon, and we could we could translate this experience to Australian politics well, as well, but it's not as, it's not as visceral, well, we this, might do it a sec, yeah. this tug yeah. of war. Yeah. But let's just stay with Trump because yeah. that's kind of easy. And, and well, he's, he's an outlier. He's in an out, he yeah. is, he is. But he's, mm. he's a good case study to work mm. these things through. So he basically, uh, the, the genius of Trump in the disrupted media environment is that he plays journalists at our own game. Mm. He basically picks up the fact that uh, our craft is about... Uh, bearing witness, observing, mm. reporting what important people A- say. And conflict. And fundamentally news is about conflict, yeah. particularly political news, which is basically the battle of ideas mm. rendered in you mm. know in journalistic form. So he's very, very masterful at, at understanding those dynamics and turning them back on ourselves. Now, is there an easy answer? Well, no is the problem because... Uh, <sighs> <laughs> you you get into a position as a journalist where do you play censor? Mm. Do mm. you not report mm-hmm. what somebody says because you know you're being played? Mm-hmm. Well, well, do you, well, you do you? Well, sometimes, sometimes you do. Of course you do. Sometimes, yeah. yes, but you can't do it all the time. Mm. And if we sort of seek to set ourselves up uh, as as an omniscient type figure with perfect wisdom on when we will censor and when we won't. I think that's the time for news consumers to worry about us, right? Mm. So that's a genuinely vexed and difficult question. When do you when do you turn the volume down on an important person? Well, uh, I think the answer is you have to do it. I don't think we can shy away from doing it. I think you do have to do it. I think you have to be, or we have to be, as practitioners in this age enormously self-aware of our of our own craft and also of be self-aware about the capacity for gaming of yes. our own craft. Well, and, and as you say, Trump is the master who's gaming, gaming everyone here. I mean, just talk about our own country for a second. Well, t- well two things. One is a, a broader question. So the conflict model of journalism, the kind of he said, she said, the battering of the ball across the net all the time, mm-hmm. which is kind of in a way that's still our stock in trade. Yeah. Do you think that that's wearing a bit thin with people? I think it's fatiguing audiences yeah. in a big way. Yeah. I think two things um, that we that I'm very conscious of in the current environment is the, bon- the bombardment of the new mm. with the audience, that literally people are drowning in content and it's mm. shooting at them at enormous velocity. And the when that happens, 
one of the one of the things I'm most worried about in the current environment is this uh, equal and opposite reaction among readers mm. to mm. switch down, switch off, yep. uh, get out of here, get out of there, yep. um, fall back to resting deep uh, predispositions rather than facts. I feel this might be the case, mm. and it's too complicated, and the landscape is too cluttered to work through that factually and in an evidence based way. So that's a really troubling phenomenon. But yeah, I think we've got to be incredibly attentive about uh, burnout of not only ourselves, but our audiences, that we are literally throwing too much at people. And I think uh, we've seen actually in the more recent manifestations of digital, this sort of more consolidating phase, I think things are turning down ever so slightly in terms of, I think, I think. I I mean, one of the things you get to in the book is quite a a dark spot and you kind of take us there and you open the door and and everyone goes, oh my God, it's so dark. And and there's a couple of moments in the book that are quite dark and then you kind of, I won't ruin ruin the plot line for everyone, but you do do pull us back a little Mm. bit. But there is this dark moment in the book where you kind of question, or you raise the question, is kind of journalism and political journalism in in particular at risk of kind of losing its its position, its its value, Mm. right? I think it is. Right, so th- this is a really scary moment, right? It is. <laughs> I mean, really is. Yeah. This is. It's about as existential as it gets. Co- yeah, it's about as existential. The pack of yeah. cards called full down. Yeah, it is. So again, and there is there are no easy answers, and you sort of help us through, a f- point us to a few in the book, but what can we do? I mean, if you were talking to your younger self. Yes. Or my younger self. Yes. yes what would you tell him or her? Well, I I would tell you that there are no easy answers and I can't uh, give you fake reassurance that somehow we'll get through this intact, uh, serving the public interest, uh, doing our, you know, everything will be marvellous somehow at the end of this line. I can't can't tell you that because I don't know whether that's true or not and Mm. I wouldn't insult your intelligence by giving you false comfort. But... One thing, I suppose, what enables me to pull back from my own existential terrors is that fundamentally I still believe in what we do. Mm. I think it's important. And I think at its best, it it changes things. It Mm. makes things better. Um, I still believe that there is truth, even in an age where it's harder and harder to determine what the truth is. Post-truth age. But I believe truth exists. I believe it exists. Well, I think we have to believe that, don't we? Well, I think it's true. And I think uh, journalism fundamentally is the art of serving the truth. Or helps, yes, seeking the truth. Seeking the truth, exactly. So I think the the only way to get through is trying to project those enduring values into the new environment. And if the old values clash with the new environment, uh, the problem might be the new environment. (laughs) It mightn't be the projection of the old values. So then it's a matter of experimenting in new forms mm. in order to find a level that mm. where those values work in the new yeah. environment. Well, I mean, that's the fundamental driver of the transit, well, the positive driver in the transition, right? To use the harness of technology, but remain true to yes. the eternal values. Well, I think so. And mm. it's not easy. And I'm not saying that anybody does it perfectly. I don't know anyone who does it perfectly. Mm. I certainly don't. Mm. But uh, I do show up every day with that intention yeah. And as long as we show up every day with that intention uh, and we we do more good than harm, 
then we're holding our own in a very, very difficult and challenging period, I think. Uh, again, I wish I could cure cancer for everyone here this evening, but I can't. Mm. So um, it's, it's... Maybe later. Maybe. <laughs> maybe after dinner. After dinner, <laughs> that's right. So just while we're talking about Trump, and I'm not going to... I think it's my last mention of him, but I'm interested in Trump and his manipulation or his understanding. I mean, his very, very clever understanding of what makes us lot tick. Is there anyone, not talking about political ideology so much as technique, in the in our body, political bodies, is there anyone who comes anywhere near that? Who well, we have echoes of it. I think yeah. uh, sort of, and you'd never say a, a Trump or a, or a Trumpian character wouldn't work in the Australian mm. political scene. You would no. never have that confidence. Uh, there are material differences, obviously, sure. between... So I'm talking about the kind of understanding of the media, so much, not so much as... Yes, the as, as the conditions that create mm. the demagogue. Yeah, no, it's it's different. Um, yeah, I think we see experiment, experiments with it uh, a lot. Certainly, um, you know, that sort of post-truth politics, the high-conflict politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, this might be a silly example, but the story that dominated the political week last year, uh, last year, last week, last week, I don't even know what century I'm in, David. Leonhelm and the handsome young thing. thing. In a way, it's a perfect case study of Mm. of the disrupted media environment, what works and what doesn't, right? In that instance, um, we are reporting a real thing, uh, Sarah Hanson Young and a a workplace harassment. Uh, We're reporting a cultural moment, which is quite profound. Women, Mm. uh, you know, having a gutful of this Mm. crap and Mm. sort of saying all at once, in, in very loud and forceful terms, we've really had a gut full of this crap. That's an important cultural moment. You need to mark it. But in terms of this death match that then ensued between the two protagonists, mm. uh, David Leonhelm was kind of narrow casting for all he was worth. Mm-hmm. You know, there are votes. There are votes in um, thinking that you can say whatever you like to women mm. and not apologising for it. And we, in the news media, yeah. amplified that. Absolutely. And then, of course, the Sky News thing as well. Which Absolutely. Is the, yeah. And then we can get outraged about the amplification, exactly. even though we did the amplification. Exactly. And see, this is the thing. I suppose, okay, now we've reached the threshold here because it's sort of the – there is a point of extreme cynicism in this kind of media market where it's, you know, heads we win, tails we win, right? Mm-hmm. You can know that this is – uh, you know, a massive kind of media moment, which it was. I mean, the traffic I know in uh, on The Guardian for these stories was massive, and mm. I think for every organisation, right, because everybody's interested. It's a water cooler story. So you can actually, if you're really uber cynical in the modern media environment, have a little bit of this at every stage. You can cover the opening. You can uh, cover the high conflict thing. Then you can do the end cycle, basically criticising everybody for, for covering it, Right. Like if you're uber cynical, as you say, well, heads we win, tails we yeah, win. Yeah, but who loses is the, is the consumer of news. And and <laughs> tell me about them. And did you? But that's a great example, really. Even though it's you know such a stupid story, but in a way, did you get or do you get the sense from the audience? Because a lot of the book actually, when you start pondering the positives, is that the relationship between journalists and the audience has changed completely, yeah. irrevocably. It'll never be the same. It'll yeah. never be this distant thing we had in the past. So when you get a Hanson, Young, Leonholm spat like that, do you get the feedback from the readers that say, hang on, enough already? Yes. And, yeah. and, and yet we continue. Well, it's sort of, you get, it's a funny thing because uh, there's this prolifera- pr- proliferation in live coverage because people want 
things called live. Mm -hmm. That's why it happens because there's a Mm -hmm. massive audience for it. In a story like that, uh, you get massive traffic for it. Everybody's reading about it, talking about it, wants to know the next iteration Mm -hmm. of it. Yet for, I suppose, media consumers that are more attentive to the dynamics in the environment, you also get pushback from from those readers and consumers. I don't want to hear any more about this you're just amplifying conflict. Mm-hmm. You're just fueling the circus. Now how do so, we uh, square that circle? Well, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the very personal parts in the book is where you talk about exactly what we're talking about now, which is, you know, this rise of the flimsy, intraday, insight badges, exclusive. You know, it's febrile, it's shouty, mm-hmm. it's superficial, it's shallow. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, as you say, some days you basically have to go and take a walk up a mountain and shout to the winds because yeah. it's unbearable. It is unbearable. So it's unbearable what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Only some days. No, no, it can be. Right. Yeah. Okay. So isn't there a, a bunch of signals saying here... Let's not do it anymore. Uh, not to you personally. No. Well, 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 thank you. Issue. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, you for, you for not sacking me it. on air. Thank you. Um, uh, yes, it's, we're getting signals that we need to think about how we do it differently and uh, how I suppose uh, we've had this big, big technological disruption We've had where we've basically had to relearn our jobs in front of a live audience. That's what's happened. We've just had to be entirely different kind of uh, news commodifiers, for want of a better term, in full public view. Uh, Now I think we are genuinely in a settling phase with all of this. Obviously, the technology is going to keep coming. It's going to keep challenging us. It's going to keep challenging our business models. It's going to keep challenging you know, the very fundamentals of our craft, whether or not people can believe that something is true or not true and all of that sort of stuff, Mm. right? Mm. All of that's going to keep coming at us. I don't think that it's the world suddenly going to stop. But I think we do have an opportunity in this consolidation phase to think through uh, what's what works about the environment, what doesn't work about the environment, and also have a ready eye to the fact that we are potentially burning ourselves out and potentially burning our audiences out. Yes, so I think there is an opportunity to think about how we how we go forward. Absolutely. And and one of the things I think that you don't actually say this in the book, but it runs through it, I think, is this tendency for the news media, for journalists to be perhaps a little bit too sentimental. Yeah. Right? It was so great when. Yeah. It was so good when we didn't have Google and Facebook stealing our revenue. Not that much argument about that in one way, but <laughs> but it's kind of like this idea of looking for already uh, the, the villain in the piece. Yeah. When possibly the victim in the villain in the piece might be us. Well, uh, definitely. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's uh, yeah, look, I don't look at the digital environment uh, as a Luddite. I don't want to smash my computer or my mobile phone or go back to newspapers. Uh, I'm sort of in my own practice, I'm so beyond newspapers that I don't think I could ever go back to that static world. I just don't think I could. And I don't think I uh, romanticise it in in sort of documenting the last 10 years of it uh, because I was sort of post-golden age. I believe journalism had a golden age, but Oh, you were there. You were oh, there. You I, was so, I was only briefly there. I was only very briefly <laughs> there. I know. Only very briefly I saw you there. See it. Oh, love! I was only so briefly there. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so it, it's not a it's not a matter of uh, sentimentalising, and that is stupid. Um, uh, it's more benchmarking what we did then versus what we did now, and working.
working out whether those differences are material mm. and working out whether there is any merit in considering how we did things in the past and trying to do it in a similar fashion in okay, the future. Okay, well, let's go to a couple of those specifics. Well, you talk in the book about the the idea of journalists as the voice of God yes. being somewhat a redundant Morgan Freeman-esque moment. Thank God. Thank God, uh, if she's listening. And and the other one is these questions that swirl around the word objectivity. Yes. But you don't actually use objectivity in the book much, but you kind of get you swirl around it. And this whole concept, which you cite Jay Rosen and others have talked about, which is, you know, objectivity is a becoming a redundant concept because if our readers know where we're coming from, why don't we just say, hey, we're journalists, we've done the best we can, but we think, because we think this, we think this is how it should be reported. In other words, subjectivity rather than mm. objectivity because mm. objectivity has become a bit of a useless thing to hang around our neck. Mm. So those two very specific things, voice of God and objectivity, If correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're ha- happy to kill off the voice of God, yep. but you want to hang on to objectivity. Well, not, not in some sort of, um, not in a false balance form. The right. only thing that's worse than, um, than voice of God in my head, which is the worst, as we've both identified, I'm, I'm not, a, I was never a fan and I'm glad mm. to see the back of it. In terms of objectivity, uh, I prefer to think about verification rather than objectivity. It's a subtle distinction, but anyway, um, I don't want false balance. I do not. All things are created equal. All stupid arguments can be lined up against sensible arguments, and that's just the you know mm-hmm. that's the word of the law. No, um, that's dumb. So you don't but, want an ABC charter. Well, how dare, how dare you say the false balance factory? How dare you say that? No, I don't. No, I really don't. You don't want an much, ABC charter? No, no, much and all, as I, as I absolutely respect the ABC, mm. uh, no, I don't want that. I, okay. don't think it's, I don't think it's helpful. But full subjectivity of the type that Rosen and others talk about, where it's just basically uh, uh, confess your biases so everybody knows where you're coming from, and then just get on with things. I don't think it works because there's a sort of, there's a lack of discipline in it. Uh, everybody's got values. Everybody's got a point of view. Everyone's got a worldview. It's ridiculous mm-hmm. to suggest otherwise. Uh, of course. Right? Yeah. But the discipline of journalism as a facts and evidence-based craft is that you can get out of your own road. Mm. You mm. can make the facts because, more, because, it, yes, more that's important. Right. But, but indeed, indeed. And I think we would both... You know, we certainly both come from that strand of thought. Yeah. But Rosen is sort of saying, well, A, can you, but B, why should you? Because it's important. Right. It's important to, uh, it's more important to seek facts than, than anything is what we're really saying. It's, it's, uh, you've got to, it's, all I can construct it in my own mind is it's, it's a mental discipline. Mm. Um, I'm not saying that you, I mean, everybody approaches the facts and and sort of refracts them through their values prism, mm. right? So it's sort of in a way we're kind of we're being a bit excessively binary here, obviously. Are, obviously, we obviously are. you bring uh, your own I, values into it. We should confess. Good yes, well, totally. I'm confess to that. Totally. Yeah. But I think, no, I do think there is a really vital uh, discipline in journalism, which is, I don't think it's enough to say to the reader, look, I think uh, my worldview is X. Uh, so I will just tell you what I think through the prism of my worldview. I don't think that's enough. I don't mm. think that serves the reader. I think what serves the reader is to try and put down your predispositions, 
walk into a situation, determine the facts based on the evidence and follow the facts and follow the evidence, whether or not that clashes with your worldview or whether or not it, it does. I still think that's important. And why I don't like objectivity as much as verification, it sort of comes back to that, right? It's a, it's a process of go out, to try to the best of your ability to determine what is true and share that with the reader. I mean, objectivity is in a way a deeper and broader concept than verification. And I think verification is a very handy concept for us. I mean, you know, they've got to trust us for something, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one thing that you talk about, one other sort of thing we talk about a little bit here is this idea, you saw the internet age as a place to build a kind of campfire. Yeah. You could have a conversation, yeah. light a fire, we'll sit around and have a chat. Yep. And in the book, you kind of extend that a little bit and suggest that and then possibly the next step is for us to become, if you like, river guides in white water. Mm. You're, you're, you're a nice quote. So that left me feeling a little bit optimistic. <laughs> did <laughs> well, you mean to do that? Yeah, yes, I did. did. Yeah. Okay, well, well, okay. well, I'm not, I, at this stage, I'm not planning myself to go off and work in a dress shop. Right. At this stage, and well, certainly not a sports craft shop. Um, <laughs> look, at this at this stage, I am shows. planning to plow on in my own profession, mm. and I'm not intending through this essay to uh, compound uh, a loss of faith in our institution. That's really not my purpose. No. My purpose is to acknowledge uh, the difficulties that we are currently going through in an honest and open way with the reader. In a with an objective of seeking a community of interest with a reader, mm. which is uh, you know that that's the upside of of digital for me is that it creates this opportunity for journalism to renew its mandate its mandate in a mm. community. You literally can go to a community in in uh, technology allows you to do that yeah. and to build a constituency with an audience in a way that we couldn't have done with print because it's too remote. It's too remote from an audience. I mean, audiences loved mastheads, you know, when you ran the Sydney Morning Herald. I mean, how passionate is that audience? And when mm. I work for The Age, how amazingly passionate is that audience? I'm mm. not saying that uh, that readers weren't connected to newspapers. Of course they were, absolutely. But this is a more hands-on thing. This is uh, this is more a bond that you can well, see, touch. it's a more personal touch. thing, isn't it's, it? Exactly. I mean, you, you now are the brand's as much as you know, the, the the website you work for, the the Guardian Australia. Well, I think that's there's there's downsides to that, but there's all, the upside of it is that you are there, you are accessible, you are open, you are accountable to your audience, and you are on a journey with your audience. And mm. I don't say that in some sort of you know praise the unicorn sense. I mean it's mm. just you. This is a hard job, and knowing that you're not alone when you do it is incredibly consoling, actually, and important. And knowing that there are people out there whom you annoy the crap out of, but also people who really support and and encourage you in your mission is great. That's like, that's one of the upsides of digital. We should be a little bit upside on the digitals. Upside on the digital. Yes. That's a good way to almost finish this wonderful (laughs) interview. I wanted to touch before we left on the role of the platforms and in particular, we have an ACCC inquiry going on into the platforms, uh, looking at their impact on journalism. And last week, uh, we had a special time with Henry Ergas, oh. who's written a report uh, commissioned by Google about the platform's impact on public interest journalism. And he uses the definition of public interest journalism to say, in essence, uh, that there is no... Equ- uh, you can't link the n- actual number of journalists working at any one time in this country with 
the output of public interest journalism. So I was interested in what your thoughts were on that. So he, he uses public interest journalism to mean journalism where the cost of doing it mm -hmm. uh, is not compensated by the public good it receives on the other side. So it's, a, it's in, es in essence a public good. So that's his. So he really talks a lot about investigative journalism, for instance. Mm. Now, obviously, mm. you don't never get compensated for investigative journalism. It is a public good. Yeah. But he's also making this point, and it's interesting because you've written a, you know this essay on disruption, and part of that you cite the the numbers that have been lost mm. on journalists in this country. Henry doesn't worry about that. He oh. thinks that's perfectly fine. Oh. I'm interested in whether you think that we are that there's less good journalism around, as it were, because we have fewer journalists? Well, it's it's not... I suppose Henry is correct to say that it's not... He's an economist. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. So, you know, just because there are more journalists around, ipso facto, doesn't mean that there is better journalism around. Mm. Like, that's, that's a reasonable proposition to make. Mm. Um, but, no, what... Uh, the, the, job, the job losses... And the character of the people who we lost mm. in the transition, these are, according to that New Beat study, mm. you know, for people average age 49, two, de two decades worth of experience on the job. They are the people who left us. And as someone who watched all of those people go with massive amounts of personal grief and anxiety, mm. I know what we've lost. Mm. I know what we've lost. So I don't really need someone to give me an ab abstract proposition about what we've lost doesn't mean anything because that's wrong. Right. We've, we've lost depth. And what also what I would really like people listening to be attentive to, because not many people think about this outside the industry, but we really need news organisations to be able to operate at scale in order to protect our investigative function because just a simple economic proposition. The subjects of investigative journalism sue. They sue journalists. Those those defamation suits are enormously yeah, the expensive. Cost of doing journalism enormously is expensive. Yeah. And in the, in this country where we have very flimsy free speech protections mm. in this country, people get sued all the time. Mm. If we do not have organizations that are able to operate at scale and defend their work and defend their own journalists, we will not have investigative journalism in this country. Do you get, on that point, and maybe to finish this wonderful interview, uh, do you get the sense that the federal government uh, is willing, to, and A, understands what you just said, and B, maybe willing to act to protect journalism in this country? The difficulty, I think, that is facing governments now is because uh, their own landscape as politicians has become so hyperpolar and also the media landscape has been cluttered with culture war mm. and tribalism. I think it's increasingly difficult for governments to stand up for a, a, a basic principle that they would regard not even the industry as having unanimity upon, if that makes sense. I think it is difficult. I think it really is difficult. Uh, for journalists, or sorry, for governments to stand up for a principle mm. about journalism in in the modern age, uh, I think they should. <laughs> I think they should, and I do think that politicians, because they've been on the front line of the same disruption we have lived through, I think they I think they get it. 
because they've lived it themselves. Well, and they're com- complicit in it. That's well, it. absolutely. You know, we've discussed. But we don't, it, they, they don't need it explained to them because mm-hmm. they themselves have been through it. Sure. So I do think that uh, I'm, I'm sort of reassured that a lot of senior people in politics do think about these issues and not superficially, and they think about uh, what might be able to be done in all of the circumstances. But, it, you know, the whole landscape is the badlands. Yeah, it's all badlands out there. Has the Prime Minister read your book? Uh, he told me he bought it, actually. The, <laughs> fairly he bought recently. it? Yes, he has bought it. Oh, that's nice to see I'm, him I'm spending sure his own money, it. isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. So oh, I don't should. know. Get I him can't. on the line and find out. <laughs> get get I mean, him to do a review. Get, get the Prime Minister on the line and find out if he's read the book. Um, you, you've been listening to The Fourth Estate, a very special uh, podcast with Catherine Murphy, the the. Uh, essayist. I think we can call you an essayist now. Goodness, that sounds very uh, Political editor of The Guardian and who's written a wonderful book called On Disruption, part of an MUP series of ONS. And before we go off, in a few words, why should the general public buy this book? Uh, because I would really like the general public to understand that our disruption is their disruption. I don't want people to think that this is a memoir of a journalist who has endured a transition. It is that, but it isn't that. Mm -hmm. What I want to achieve with this project is grabbing people by the lapels and saying, look, there's some really big things, big consequential things going on here that may not, you may not be able to put all these pieces of your puzzle together because they're not obvious from the outside, Mm -hmm. but they are critical. What's happening is critical to how society conducts itself, to how politics is conducted, to whether journalism even happens anymore, to whether or not people can believe the output of journalism as being real, verifiable or fake. These are not small things. These are things which in a democracy that is, that's kind of the, the kind of access point on which a democracy turns. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we need to be sleepwalking into this set of circumstances, I think we need to be awake, attentive and engaged. Catherine Murphy, thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure.